0: It has sometimes been asked of Christians in a provocative way to try and stir them up to make them self evaluate a simple question. If you could tell nobody that you were a Christian, would they know? It's a good question, it's something for us to consider. And it's something that we find as we are reading Paul's section of thanksgiving in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Last week we saw how he commented on these works of faith and labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But he turns all of that around as he comes to verse 4. It's almost like he's watching the river trickle down, and as he looks at the water closest to him, he's able to say, these are the works of faith and the labor of love and the endurance of hope, these things that I am thankful for. But where is the source of this stream? Where did it all begin? What am I truly thankful for? I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians, where we continue down this line of thought. Our text comes only from verse 4, where we read that it is by God's choosing of the Thessalonian believers that He is able to see all of these things. I want to read this morning this whole section I want to make sure that we don't get too far away from the bigger picture. I know that we are moving at a slow pace. So I want to read, even though our focus is just upon verse 4, all the way from verse 2 all the way through to verse 10. As we do that, I'd like us to prepare our hearts. Let's pray that we might understand what the Spirit is saying. Father in heaven... As we come to you this morning, I pray that if we are not already eager to hear your word, that we would become eager. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts, even before we begin, even in the middle of our services this morning, Lord. I pray that we would realize that there is an expectation that our lives would be changed as a result of drawing nearer to You. Lord, I pray that as we turn to this text that You would open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in Your law. I ask, Lord, that what we have not, You would give us. What we are not, You would make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 2, the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Bible says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, Brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that they report to us Of the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Verse 4 really only has three main parts. There is first the question of how do we look at all of these attributes that Paul is giving thanks for? How do we find the source of works of faith, viewing our faith as a vocation, labor of love, Struggling and striving and enduring and working because we love. And enduring, persevering, overcoming, even finding opportunity and obstacles because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Looking at those things, Paul is able to say, why do we work, labor, and endure? First of all, because we know. (laughs) That's the first part. The only reason we're able to do any of this, the reason that there are works of faith, is because we know. Writing to this church that Paul had only spent a month, maybe two months, three months at most, but more than likely less than that, a very short period of time, Paul sees this report that Timothy brings back to him, that the church is still there, that it's thriving, that there is some good news, maybe a few issues Young believers have a few issues. Some of us never grow past that point. But we need to grow past it. And so Paul writes this letter because he's not content that the church would simply struggle with the issues that a young believer would have. He says, we know that there are these works of faith and we give thanks to them. We know that these are here. How do I know that they are there? I know because God saved you. That's a tough thing. And just think about this for a moment. How do we know another person is truly saved? Can you know? Can you know that anyone besides yourself is truly a Christian? There's no way for you to know. That's between them and God. But I'll tell you something. Just in personal experience, I think all of our experience will affirm this. I know when it's likely that somebody's faith is genuine, and I also know when it's unlikely when somebody's faith is genuine. You put that to the test however you like, but it is evident in the way that people behave how they have been touched by the Spirit. Now, we can make terms with that and play with it and try to stretch it in all sorts of different ways. I also think that it's possible that people have genuinely been touched by the Spirit and decided too early on that they knew everything that they needed to know about God, that they stopped growing altogether. And in the words of the world-famous philosopher, Mr. T, I pity the fool. The word used here for know is not the kind of, I know things... It's not the kind of, I've experienced things and I know them. It's actually a verb translated half the time, as I see. What Paul, Sylvanas, and Timothy are saying, I can see that God has chosen you. I can see that you have been saved by grace through faith because of your works of faith, your labor of love, and your endurance of hope. I can see all of these things. The manner of our salvation should always be evident in our life. If we weren't able to tell anyone that we were a Christian, they should be able to look at our lives and say, There's something different about you. We shouldn't have to tell people that we are Christian. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we should. But we shouldn't have to do it with words. I'll tell you the most startling thing in the world is when somebody tells you they're a Christian and you look back at all your experiences with them and you go, really? (laughs) Do you want to know why door-to-door evangelism doesn't work the way that it used to 40 years ago? We've had too many people come to our door and we find out that they're a Christian and we go, really? It has damaged the testimony of the church. I tell you what, what if we were just committed to being followers of Christ and when people saw something different in us, that was the point we said, you know what's different about me? I've given my life to Jesus Christ and He has changed everything about me. Tell you what, that's a bigger witness. That's a more powerful testimony. That's a more pulling conviction than pretending. The manner of our salvation should be seen in our lives. I said that, but by what? What is the manner of things? What is the manner of our salvation? How will people see this? Is it by our piety? Is it by our prayers? Is it by our works? Is it by our labor, our endurance, our ingenuity? Absolutely, all of those things should be present. But I'll tell you the real scary thing. All of those things can exist and not be authentic. We can be pious and have no sincere faith. And I'm not saying not saved, right? I'm not saying not saved. I'm saying no active, sincere faith. We may have been saved by faith and never grew up. We can have an active prayer life out in front of everybody and not have an active faith that God will actually answer our prayers. We can pray that God would grow the church by sending to us more young people in particular, but we never consider what are, where are we going to put all these young people? We can pray all of these things and have no active faith that God can do what we ask Him to do. We can work and view our faith as the only job that we have and have no real faith in what we are doing. We can labor and toil and we can have endurance. We can be inventive, entrepreneurial, creative, in trying to seek God's will in our lives and have no real faith. loved ones, the first church's success, did not come because they were pious, prayerful, faithful and working, intense about their labor, enduring in hope, or even creative. It didn't come. Because of what they were doing outside of the church. Read the book of Acts. Just read it, don't take my word for it. And you will find that the early church's success came because of how authentic they were when they were around other believers. Christians are countercultural. That doesn't mean we're just cultural plus. I fear that the church has become something we add on as a tagline to our lives. Especially in the South. Especially in Southern culture. Well, of course I'm a Christian. Everyone is. My neighbor is, my dentist is, my doctor is. If Christianity is just a tagline on all the things that we are, we're not truly Christians. Being a Christian is all-encompassing, all-inclusive, affecting everything. There are certain things that we should know. The Bible talks about these, the things that we should know. Here's five things. In Romans 6.6, 6, Paul writes, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We should know that as Christians, we have victory over sin. That means that when we fall into temptation, when we do sin, it's not because you didn't have the ability to turn away from it. It's because your flesh won. I'll tell you, that's a grace of God that you get to be reminded that you're not done growing. Because when you rightly reflect on the sin that still exists inside of every believer on this side of eternity, that is a reminder, a thorn in your side, a burden. That is a reminder that you are not done growing until you're in the ground. And if you believe otherwise, I'll tell you where you belong to be. In the ground. James wrote to the church, or the people of the dispersion, to be more specific, that the testing of our faith produces patience. As a Christian, you should know that our faith does not mean everything's going to go well for you. You should know that there are going to be moments of testing and trial. And you're going to be better for it. Peter wrote to his friends that there is no prophecy of Scripture that is subject to a single person's interpretation. 2 Peter one twenty. Now this is a tough one. Because I tell you what, when I look out at the church, this is really what we're missing. We say we do Bible study, but we don't talk about our Bible study. Your interpretation of Scripture is not authoritative. My interpretation of Scripture is not authoritative. Scripture alone is authoritative. Do you know who gets to interpret Scripture? The church. This is part of the reason God calls His people together. This is part of the reason we're told in the book of Hebrews not to forsake the gathering together of the saints. Not just to conduct business, but because the church is the entity on earth with heavenly authority. Not the pastor, not a deacon, not a church member, not an individual, not even the most mature Christian you can think of. It's the church. It's the collective body that gets to put all of this together. Peter also said in 2 Peter 3:3 3, 3, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Well, big surprise. We were already warned about temptation, already warned about trials, already warned about hardship. But worse yet, our biggest concern is not the persecution that comes from the inside, but the People who make false professions of faith on the inside of the church. Who rather than submitting to the authority of Scripture, believe they've already made it. One last thing that Christians should know. While you might not be able to know that anyone else is saved around you, you can know that you are saved. In fact, the entire book of 1 John is about this. You can know that you know God. 1 John 2, 3 says, For by this we know that we have come to know Him if we follow His commandments. You can know that you have been saved simply by the way that you know God. I think that's incredible. I think that's uplifting. I think that's... It even plants the seed of zeal inside of me. I can know with confidence that I have a relationship with God, which means that I can know with confidence when I'm walking in obedience to Him. I can know with confidence when He is directing my life. I can know with a sense of peace what He is doing around me. And I can seek His wisdom and He promises to give it to me. That's a big deal. You can know that you are saved. The goal of our faith is that we would know the Father. All the way from the beginning of time, if we went back in the Bible and we looked at what it means to be a Christian, to be a God-fearer, to be the people of God, however we want to put that, we would find that the goal of our faith is simply that we would know God. Now, don't get confused. When we look at this phrase in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that we know, Paul, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy say, he's not talking about the kind of knowledge where we know a lot of the Father. He's not talking about saying we know a lot about the Father. He's not saying we know the Father's will. He's not saying that we know the Father's nature. He is simply saying that we should know The Father. The Christian's goal in gaining knowledge is simply to know the Father, the way that I know a friend, the way that I know a family member, the way I know a fellow church member, simply to know someone. This is really the goal. So I've asked a lot of questions so far. I said that some people ask in a provocative way, if you could tell no one that you are a Christian, would anyone else know? I'll tell you the problem with that question. You define Christian by what you think a Christian is. And so it's not actually a challenging question the way that it's supposed to be. Here's the application test. Get out your notes app on your phone. Get out a piece of paper and start writing down all of the things that have changed about you since you have been a follower of Christ. Start with salvation. That was a big change. But don't stop there. List out the opinions that you've held that have changed. Man, my list goes on and on forever. I've had to change a lot of opinions. I was raised in the liberal quarter of Arkansas. My brain had to be reshaped by godliness. And it wasn't always a fun process. Man, I remember one time I was sitting down with Brother Wade and uh, Alberto Herrera, my fellow disciple. And we were talking about how it is that God saves people. I think we were looking in Romans chapter, chapter 2. We were talking about how there is no excuse for anyone in this world. And I, I was already Christian, pretty mature in my faith. But I started taking that to the end of the argument, which is something we don't often do. I said, if there's no excuse for anyone in this world, that means that in the remote places of this world where the gospel has never been before, there are people dying without ever even having the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ. That means... Those people have never had the gospel proclaimed. Those people have never had the Bible in their own language, have never seen a Christian, don't even know about Abraham and Moses, have no concept of any of this, and they're dying every day, and they're going to hell. And I threw my hands up in the middle of my discipleship triad, and I said, I just want to stop for a second. And I'm sorry, Brother Alberto, i got to hold this up. I'm not okay with this. You're telling me that there are people who don't even have the hope of Jesus Christ in this world? That's not, that's not the God I know, Brother Wade. The God I know loves His creation. The God I know puts the gospel in community so that people have hope of salvation. And it turned into a fight. I totally derailed that Bible study group. I mean, just going back and forth. And if you know Brother Wade, Brother Wade Allen, pastor of Temple Baptist Church in Rogers, Arkansas, he's more hard-headed than I am. Believe it or not. Amen. I'm going to tell him to listen to this when I'll get it posted. Not really. And not only that, he has more words than I do. I left Bible study upset, frustrated, discontented with discipleship. Came back the next week, things still weren't settled. This went on for about a month. And finally, Brother Wade said something that broke through my thick skull. As hard as that truth is to swallow, that is our motivation for missions. On it clicked, all of a sudden I saw it. This is why God didn't let me just go to heaven. This is why we're here. We're spending a lot of time on, on people that are already saved. Why? <laughs> Here's the next problem that comes up if you take that argument all the way to the end. I'm getting off script, but so what? Here's the next problem that comes up. If that's our motivation for missions, why do we spend so much time on these baby nominal Christians in America? Why don't we just take all of our resources and send them to the mission field? And then I thought about what we were doing in this discipleship triad. Jesus' model for ministry wasn't that one person would do all of the work, but that he would take from Christians and make them mature disciples that they would go into the world and that they would make disciples. You know why we spend time on the grassroots movement? Because it's from that maturity that the missionaries come out, that the pastors come out, that the faithful church members that keep things running come out. That's why we don't take our focus off of what's going on inside. You want to kill a church faster than anything in the world? Here's how you kill a church. You tell that church the only thing they need to think about are the people that don't come to that church. That's not what the church actually exists for. This is the training ground. This is the battleground. This is the the outpost for the Christian mission. The church exists so that the saints would grow up in their faith and they would impact those people in their personal lives. Not in the church's life. In their personal lives. And then the church is here for those people who get saved. So we can continue making disciples. Some of you are mathematicians and better at math than I am because, well, I'm not bad at math, I just don't like it. I think it's boring to tell you the truth. The model that we tell our young people, the reason they should invest in their retirement account at an early age. You just think about it. We've all seen this illustration. Wait until you're 30 to invest a little bit of money for retirement, and look how hard you're going to have to work to save enough money for retirement. Start five years earlier, and you can stop giving to your retirement account by the time you're 35 and have enough to retire. Apply that to making disciples. If it's one person's job to make disciples, here's a text you can write down, 2 Timothy 2.2. For these things which I have given to you and trust a faithful man who will trust a faithful man. If it's one person's job to make disciples, how many can I make? Twelve in a lifetime? Twelve genuine disciples in a lifetime? Maybe more? How many does the next generation make? If all twelve of those disciples make disciples, how many do I have now? 144? In a lifetime. What happens if I just focus on two And those two focus on two, and those two focus on two, and those two focus on two. And rather than waiting for generations, they're just doing this because that's what the church is supposed to do. That's how the church goes from 12 apostles in Acts chapter 1 to 3,000 in Acts chapter 2 and 6,000 in Acts chapter 6. That's Jesus' model for ministry. Our goal is simply to know the Father. Are we discipling? If you start with salvation and start listing out the things that have changed in your life, let me get back on track. Start listing these things out. List the behaviors that you once had that you had to change. Try as best as you can to put a date to them, maybe a season, whenever your mind was changed about something. Let me ask you a question. When you're looking at that list, maybe that hypothetical list because you didn't think I was being serious when I said write this down. How long ago was the most recent thing that you wrote down? If your answer is anything but yesterday, your faith is dead. God doesn't stop changing us. We never become equipped enough to be the person that we're supposed to be for the church. We're always lacking. We always need Him. If nothing has changed in your life since yesterday, your faith doesn't mean a whole lot. Paul writes, We know that God has chosen you because I see change happening in you. I see growth. There was a man that didn't believe in this kind of change. He walked with the ways of the world most of his life. He was 65 years old, not a Christian. But something happened. He became a dad at 65 years old. And there was something about seeing children for the first time. That all of a sudden, this man put his faith in God and he began to walk according to God's ways. And he never stopped growing. From that point on, he never stopped growing. And you think, well, that's not a big deal, he was 65. How long could he have possibly lived without growing? 600 years after that, he died at 665 years old. His name's Enoch. You can read about him in Genesis chapter 5. For 600 years, he didn't stop walking with God. And what the Bible says about him in Hebrews 11:5 is that it was by faith that Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And it was not found. He was not found because God had taken him for before he was taken He had this testimony that he pleased God. Can you say the same about yourself? When I talk about change and I say, you've got to change something every day. You've got to draw closer to God every day. You can't just stay where you're at because that's not real growth. That's just maintaining something that's already decayed and needs more God. 600 years. Can you imagine that much change in your life? I wonder if people even recognized him when he was on his deathbed. Oh wait, he never had a deathbed. The problem with the question that I posed at the beginning of this, if you could tell no one that you were a Christian, would they know, is that we define Christian by our own terms. We've forgotten what it means. That suffix at the end of the word, I-A-N, it's become antiquated. We don't really use it anymore. It means belongs to. When you see I-A-N, it means belongs to. I am an American. Why? I belong to the United States of America. I'm a citizen there. I am a Christian because I belong to the Messiah. I am a Christian because I belong to Christ. I am His. He is the authority over my life and He changes everything about me. When we define what, that we look like a Christian by our piety, by our public prayer life, by all of these things, it develops a false sense. It's a a pretense is really what it is. It's not truly belonging to Christ. When we look inward at the things about us that have changed, when we look inward and we say, I've become more compassionate. I've become more loving. I've become more sensitive to the needs of others. I've become more burdened for this world. Those things, that's the real deal. Satan doesn't have to work very hard to kill the church today. He simply needs to convince you that you're already doing everything right. If he convinces you of that, he's already won. Because the church won't have active life. It won't have real vibrancy. It won't have real mission. If he just convinces you that you're already doing everything right, there's not a battle he needs to put up. Why do we work, labor, and endure? Because we know things. We see the work of God. We see the transformation in our lives. The second part, I love this. Paul interrupts himself. This is called the vocative phrase. He says, brothers loved by God. I'll tell you something. This phrase, brothers loved by God, is a phrase reserved in the first century for very special people. The Jews only used this word, brothers loved by God. Oops. He only used this word when referring to people like Moses or Solomon, or David. That guy was loved by God. And if they were talking about anyone in the present tense, it was always a collective. So they would say, Israel is loved by God. But never would they say this to an individual, not to a common man, not to a regular person. Brothers loved by God. First of all, he calls them brothers. He recognizes that their tie with one another goes all the way back to the adoption of Christ in Christ through Christ, and by Christ. He calls them brothers, and he says, you're loved by God. I believe that there is no arena in which the authenticity of our Christianness is tested than in how we view our fellow man. The Bible is clear about man's fallen nature. We should view all people as fallen, totally depraved. Ephesians 2, 1-7 says, "...you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." We love to remember Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own works but is the work of God. And also 9 and 10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus so that we can do good works that He has prepared beforehand for us. But we always forget about verses 1 through 7. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And verse 4 is amazing. But the mercy of God but God in His great mercies. Despite all man's fallen nature, the Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. God loves His creation. As bad as you are, as wicked as you are, as in desperate need of a Savior as you are, as in need of revival as you are, God loves you. He loves you. Paul writing to this church, I imagine the frustration. I mean, Paul's got a pastor's heart. Here's this group of people. They've got everything they need. They're, they've got everything they need to be a healthy church, but they're not a healthy church. And, and he says, brothers loved by God. Wow. Do we view our fellow man that way? More importantly, do we view other believers that way? The phrase, beloved by God, carries so much weight when we consider that this wasn't something that people said. Nevertheless, Paul chose this phrase. Do we view our brothers and sisters in Christ as those loved by God? Do we desire to love them to the same degree that God loves them because we know that we are Belonging to Him. If I'm Christ, doesn't that mean that I should love like Christ loves? And if I know that my fellow believer, my fellow Christian is loved by God, should I not desire to love them in the same way? How is it that people will know that we are Christians? Jesus said, You will know, they will know that you are my disciples. And what was it that he said? Was it by their devotion to church? Was it by their devotion to tradition? Was it by the things that they knew? Was it by the sacrifices that they made to be there? I don't know, let's look it up. What is it, John 13, 35? They will know that you are my disciples by how often they see you praying. No, that's not it. They will know that you are my disciples by how devout you are to the church. that's not it either. They will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Where is that love? I look at the American church and what I see is more fighting over issues that don't truly matter. I see more jockeying to be in control on things that don't belong to us. Then I simply see love for one another. The desire to see other people grow in Christ. In fact, what I see is people more interested in what other people are doing Than how they are growing themselves. Mr. T got it right. I'm telling you. I pity the fool. I pity the fool that is so distracted by their self righteousness that they do not see how much they need a Savior. When we live our lives without love for other believers, it is a disgraceful pretense on what it means to be called a Christian. It is distorted by bad attitudes. It is decayed by selfish ambition. Our only hope is that it would be matured by discipleship. Sayings true, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And while God is capable of changing everything about us inside and out, if we're not committed to real discipleship, those things just may not change. I'm thankful for the hope that one day we'll be heaven in heaven and everything will be Rectified on its own that these things will be set aside. But can I tell you what I'm worried about today and tomorrow and the next day? I'm worried if the church does not change that the testimony in America will become dismissed. Unless there's this authenticity, unless it comes from God and is initiated by God, church will die do you know what people who study missions do you know what they call europe the continent of europe they call it the land scorched by the gospel it's one of the hardest mission fields in the entire world it's more difficult than creative access countries where we cannot go and get a missions passport or missions visa to be there because christianity is illegal Europe is harder to proclaim the gospel in because the land has been so scarred, so marred by a fake kind of Christianity that people don't even listen anymore. You want to know a sobering statistic? All over the world, Christianity is increasing by demographics, even in those closed countries. Everywhere in the world, Today, Christianity is growing with the exception of two places, Europe and America. We've got to get back to a simple model of ministry where we can look at one another and we can say, brother or sister, loved by God. I know that He has chosen you. That's the last word, right? This one gets people worked up. Don't worry. It's in the Bible. We know that He has chosen you. Let me skip all the interpretation and everything on this because I'm short on time this morning. Let's jump to the application. And you'll just have to test me on your own. You're capable, mature Christians. You can do this. We do not have the ability to choose who God brings into our lives. You may think that you do, but you don't. We don't have the ability to choose who God seats us next to. We do not have the ability to decide what kind of people God adds to His church. We do not have the ability to determine what ministries the church needs. We don't even have the ability to determine where we serve. All of that belongs to His decision, His ability to choose. God is at work when people are called out of community. This word, translated as "we know that God has chosen you," it's the word "eklago." It means "elect." In fact, it's the same word. You guys remember what the word is? The Greek word is for the church. Yeah, Ekklesia. It's the same compound word, except it's just referring to an individual. Called out of. The church is the called out. And guess what it means for God to choose you? You were called out. You were picked out. You were set apart. You were made by God. And this is what it means. That God is at work when people are called out of their community to come and join the church. It's it's what it means to be a Christian. That God chose you. I only put one O in there. If you look in your bulletin, I think I wrote loose instead of lose an hour. So we're going to lose an hour next week. God chose you. He chose you for this moment, this time, right here, right now, this church, this place, this area, so that you can follow Him. And you have a choice too. You have a choice to either grow in your faith and realize that you need to be changing every day, or you can keep doing things the way that you're doing them. One of them is a God-led ministry. And one of them is a man-led ministry. I'll tell you, a God-led ministry started the church in Jerusalem. A God-led ministry made it possible for the Apostle Paul to plant a church in two months in Thessalonica. A God-led ministry is what directed Paul to the church in Corinth. A God-led ministry is what made the gospel Go throughout the ends of the world like it has today. That we can rejoice in Him and that we can praise Him. And it's a man-led ministry that made Europe the land scorched by the gospel. It's a man-led ministry that's making America die today. God's already done the work. He already chose you. As they say, the ball's in your court now. Father in heaven... I pray that you would help us as we turn to you, as we recognize just how potent the gospel can be when our faith is in you and in you alone. Father, help us to stop praying that you would change other people and start praying that you would change us. Father, help us to share with each other the way that You're working in our lives so that we can be a part of a community that not only grows by person and person, but grows by people and people. Help us to respond to this message in a way that pleases You, Lord. Help us not to forsake the preaching of Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with